Well, take your Bibles, your phones, or tablets, and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Uh, last week, we uh, continued our series called The Story, and we began to look at the period known as the Judges. And that's where we learned that after the death of Joshua, who led them into the Promised Land, the children of Israel went into about a 330-year season uh, where they got caught up in this cycle, and they were led by Judges. And the judges were not judges in the sense that we think of them, someone sitting behind the bench and ruling. Uh, Their judges were the political, spiritual, and military leaders all rolled into one. So that was about a 330-year season. And during that time period, uh, Israel spent about 111 of those years, about a third of the time, in oppression. And the reason was because they could not break free from this cycle. And the cycle was rebellion and then discipline, and then uh, repentance, and then deliverance. And so in other words, they would say, God, we're, we're so sorry, we're never going to do this again. But what we learned last week is that every single time one of the judges died, the, the children of Israel went right back to their old patterns and what they were doing. So it was in this season. And so this broke God's heart because the whole reason that God was building a nation was to find a dwelling place for his presence among his people, and so they in turn could display his glory to their neighbors and to the nations. And so during this time of Judges, uh, God surprisingly highlights the story of a single family. And lower story being played out on earth uh, with the uh, Israelites, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons makes uh, an unwise, arguably unwise decision to move during the midst of a famine. So they take their family from Bethlehem uh, into a place called Moab. And Moab, uh, well, they were in search of food, but Moab was, uh, Israel was forbidden to intermarry those folks because every time the children of Israel intermarried, they went chasing after uh, the other gods of these pagan people. And so they uh, make this decision to move there. And so what happens is, is we see in the big picture of God's upper story of redemptive history is that all throughout this in the book of Ruth, there's a providential series of events that eventually uh, the grandfather of King David is born, which sets up the direct line of lineage to Jesus. Now, let me ask you something this morning. We're only nine weeks in. This is a 31-week series through the whole big picture story of the Bible. But even though we're just a little over a fourth of the way through, are you getting the picture that Jesus is the thread that runs all throughout the Bible? That the Bible is not a collection of 66 books. It is one continuous story of God's relationship with his covenant people. And Jesus is the thread woven all throughout from Genesis to Revelation. So there's no question that's exactly what we're seeing already. And so the question is this. Is that every single time we encounter this, uh, again, next step in redemptive history, uh, we begin to learn and, and ask this question. How do we, in light of what God's doing in redemptive history, which we're calling the upper story, how do we take the lower story of our lives here on earth and interpret our circumstances through what God is doing and align our lives so that we can participate in what God is doing in his upper story of redemption? And so that's incredibly uh, exciting that God would uh, be doing his sovereign work and that God would allow us to participate in what he's doing in redemptive history. Is that exciting? Judging by your faces, it's just me. Well, I'm excited (laughs) this morning. And so we're going to look here in the book of Ruth and continue to explore what does it look like to align your life, the lower story, with what God is doing 
and the upper story of redemption. So we're going to pick it up here in Ruth chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And there was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Bubba of Bethlehem. And they, <laughs> I tried ten times this week to pronounce it. I've got a Bible program. You can hit and the audio says it. I still couldn't say it after that, so I don't know what that is, all right? And then uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And now they took wives of women of Moab, the name of one. Uh, do you not want to say Oprah when you read that? That's not what it is. It's Orpah. Uh, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. And then both Malon and Chilion, that's Bubba, all right, also died. And so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. And therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. Now as we read through the uh, book of Ruth, just four short chapters, it would raise a, uh, an honest question. It doesn't read like a lot of the Bible. Doesn't, uh, it's during the period of the judges, but it doesn't talk about any of the judges. As a matter of fact, we sometimes wonder, uh, is it even about the nation of Israel? And so why is this book in here? Let me set the scene here for you just a little bit this morning. The, the story of the book of Ruth it about a husband uh, and, and his wife, Naomi, and Eli Mech. And I don't know if it's pronounced that either. We'll call him Bubba Sr., all right? And so what we don't have a picture of Naomi, but we do have a description of her. And what we learn is that her name means pleasant or sweet. And so that kind of captures her life uh, early on, and things are going according to her, uh, uh, her life story. And so uh, things seem to be going well. Her sons are born. Uh, but then when we pick up her story, the expression has changed and there's a lot of confusion taking place in her life. There's a famine. It's so severe that they say, maybe we shouldn't stay here. And so they go to a place called Moab. Now, if we were to pull up a map this morning, uh, geographically, the distance uh, from the promised land into Moab is not that far. But what you have to understand is this. To leave the promised land was a huge deal. It was a part of their inheritance, and so therefore, it was a part of their identity. Each family had a piece of land that was designated to them in the promised land, and you would pass that down from generation to generation. And so to, to pack up, even in the midst of a famine, and to, to leave the promised land was to leave a part of your identity as God's chosen people, but, but they're desperate. And so they go to a place called Moab, and Moab are the descendants of Sodom. It's incredibly pagan culture. And what you have in Moab is a lot of prejudice uh, towards the Israelites, but they go there because, again, there's such this great famine in the land. And what they heard about Moab is, yes, they don't, 
like the Israelites, yes, these are pagan people. Yes, these are the descendants of Sodom. However, we've heard that the ground in Moab is fertile and we're starving to death. And so they go. And so not only are they leaving the land, they to go to Moab, which again, they're hated as Israelites. Naomi's husband gets sick and, and eventually he dies. And so there she is, this widow woman trying to lead her family, trying to raise two boys. And these two boys uh, grow up and they fall in love with two Moabite women, uh, Orpah and Ruth, and they get married. And so finally, some good news, right? I've lost my husband. There's a famine in the land. We're starving to death. We're going to a place that does not like us. We're leaving part of our identity here in the promise. But, but finally, I've got two boys, and they find some wives, and they get married. So finally, there's some good news. But these two wedding, weddings are very quickly followed by two funerals. Because shortly after losing her husband, Naomi loses both her sons. Can you imagine the level of grief that she's experiencing? Author Edgar Jackson defined grief like this. He said, grief is like a silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone that's no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and they never will be again. That's exactly what Naomi's walking through. She's a woman in a culture at that time did not value uh, women. She's got no husband, the natural inheritance uh, of her sons. Now they're, and so it's just uh, her and her daughters-in-law. And so her life is one uh, loss after another. And so she realized this, that I, I have no choice at this point. I'm just going to go back to my homeland. That's the only thing I know to do. I don't have a husband. I don't have sons to take care of me. We're starving to death, and so I'm just going to go back to where I'm from. It's all she knows to do. And so her tells her daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, she says, Look, you just you, you stay here. You're young women. You'll get married again. Your life will start over again. Stay in your homeland of Moab. You have time, but I just have to go back. And so Orpah agrees to stay, but Ruth, her daughter-in-law, uh, she just says, No, I, I, I'm going with you. And so go down to chapter 1, look at verse 16. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For where, Now listen to this, this may sound familiar, all right? For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now you may be hearing that and think, I've heard that somewhere. Most often what you hear is, we've read that verse lots of times at weddings, Right? And the bride and groom would say this to each other, but that's actually out of context. If we want to be biblically accurate, what should happen in a wedding ceremony is the bride should turn to her mother-in-law and say, hey, wherever you go, I'm going, right? Is that a good idea? Pro probably, probably not catching on, amen? But when you hear that at a wedding next time, just stand up and say, out of context, it'll be a huge encouragement to the bride and groom on their special day, all right? And so that's what's happening here. That's what's taking place. And she just says, uh, I, I'm going with you. And so they make the Ruth and Naomi have this incredible bond, mother and daughter-in-law. And so they start to make the journey back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. 
And Bethlehem is less than about 200 people. And so when they show up, it's like, it, clearly everybody knows her. It's an incredibly small town. And when they, what all they've known of her, remember, was that her name meant pleasant or sweet. And so here comes Naomi in this little tiny village, and everyone already knows her. And so it's a big deal when she goes back home. And they look at her and say, oh, there's Naomi. There's the one who is pleasant or sweet. They have no idea of all the loss that she's experienced at this point in time, and so she corrects them when she gets there. Chapter 1, look at verse 19. And now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, or the woman said, is this Naomi? In other words, they're thrilled. Right? Like, like they're thrilled to death. But then it says this in verse 20. But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And so the reality is, listen, here, here's what she's saying. God has not been fair in my life. God has not kept up his end of the deal. This is not how my story was supposed to go. My life was not supposed to uh, happen like this. In other words, she cannot fathom how the painful events of the lower story of her life in any way, shape, or form are going to align in such a way with the upper story of what God is doing for her good and her glory. And so when she dwells on that, she gets bitter. And when she comes into town, they go, oh, there's Naomi. She's pleasant. She's sweet. She said, no, no, no. Call me bitter. For some of you, that may be the season that you find yourself in. You have no idea how the losses you've experienced are going to turn out for your good or God's glory. And don't limit the idea of loss to simply death. It may be loss of opportunity. It may be a loss of reputation. It may be a financial loss or a loss of health. It may be a loss of peace or stability. It may be a loss of uh, plans and future goals in the short term or in the long term. Whatever it is, you have no idea what you're struggling with. How in the world is God going to take all this loss and redeem it in such a way that it's for my good and my glory and I can align my life with the upper story of what God is doing in redemptive history? And some of you may even feel as if God has broken a promise. And when you look at the story of Ruth and the story of Naomi, that's exactly how she feels. And we don't have to wonder or read that in. That's exactly what she says in verses 19 through 29. I didn't sign up for this. It wasn't supposed to go like this. I'm no longer pleasant. I'm now bitter. But here's the reality. Naomi had a choice despite incredible loss. And you have a choice. And so if you're listening, say amen. You often don't get to choose your losses in life, but you do get to choose whether or not your losses will define you moving forward. Gerald Sitzer was a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. Many years ago, he was in a car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver. He was driving a minivan, and in that accident, he lost three generations of his family. He lost his mom, he lost his wife, and he lost his young daughter, but he was not hurt. And after that experience, he wrote a book called Grace Disguised, and here's what he said. He said, the experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. He says the defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be about our response to the loss. In other words, we get to decide whether or not the loss 
is going to knock us out of aligning our lives with the upper story of what God is doing. We get to choose whether or not the loss is going to define our lives or simply shape it. We get to choose whether or not the loss determines our destiny or it's a temporary, albeit painful, season in our lives. Is the loss going to define our lives? That's what Naomi is wrestling with. And at this point in chapter 1, she says, I think it will. She said, I left here, pleasant and sweet is what my name means, but I've come back empty, filled with loss, and bitter. But here's what I want us to see this morning. If there's one word to describe the story of Naomi, the word is not loss, the word is redemption. That God takes all the losses she experiences and God unfolds an incredible story of redemption that even she couldn't have seen in her limited lifetime. She thinks she's coming back empty, that God has a banner, but if she could just wipe away the tears and, and see through that, what she would really see is that God is at work in the midst of incredible loss, doing something, redeeming her story. And that's what God will do in your life. And I want you to see in, this, in the book of Ruth here two ways or two tools that God may use to redeem your losses. It's the same two that God uses in the life of Naomi here in the book of Ruth, all right? First thing I want you to see is this. God may use an unlikely friendship. Fast forward to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. God has a way of doing this. We experience loss and grief, and, and God puts someone into our lives. And oftentimes, that person that God puts in our lives may have not been the person that we would have ever assumed that God was going to use to encourage us, to walk with us, to carry our burdens when life gets incredibly difficult. And that, that's her story. Like, who would have thought that her daughter-in-law would become this incredible providential friendship? They, they had only been married to her sons, most would argue, for a short period of time. And so we're not sure the depth of the bond. And, and the, listen, the other daughter-in-law, she said, hey, Orpah, you should probably go back home. She's like, I'm out, Right? Like, she's just, no, don't have to tell me twice. I'm going. And Ruth, in chapter 1, verse 16, says, absolutely not. If you're going to walk this road of loss, you are not going to walk it by yourself. And so God sends an unlikely friendship in the form of her daughter-in-law. Chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 15. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. See, here, here's what would have happened if Ruth would have said, You know what? I, I'm with Orpah. I'll just go back too. But through an unlikely friendship, she said, no, no, Naomi, if you're going to walk with this, I'm going to walk with you. And through that unlikely friendship, God redeems the losses of Naomi's life and gives her a close relative. And a son is born out of this, and God uses that unlikely friendship. And God may do the same thing in your life. And some of you have experienced that. But the problem is this. Often when we go through loss, often when we begin to struggle, and again, loss is not only death, whatever loss looks like or struggle looks like, often what happens is this. We don't lean in or seek out unlikely friendships. What happens is when we go through a loss, we have a tendency to push people away when what we should be doing is to be drawing them close into us. 
I've been a pastor for it right at 20 years. And so if you're doing math, I started, I was 11 years old, all right? Incredibly wise for 11. I just want to say that. Let me tell you something I've watched play out for two decades now. Over and over and over that does not make sense, but yet I still see it playing out over and over. When people's life starts to fall apart, when they experience loss, loss of reputation, Loss of family, loss of relationships, loss of health, loss of job, loss of influence, loss of soul. Whatever the case is, when people's lives starts to fall apart, they start drifting from church. When they start struggling, they stop coming at a time when they need the encouragement the most from the close relationships that a church family should provide. They put distance between themselves and the church. Now, let me say something that... That's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it needs to be said, all right? So here it is. If you consider this your church home, but you have no close relationships with anyone here, here's what I want you to understand this morning. You're not practicing New Testament Christianity. You're practicing American Christianity. We live in a culture that's rugged individualism, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I don't even know what bootstraps are. Apparently you can pull them. I don't know. Right? We live in a, listen, that's not the Christianity of the Bible. In the New Testament, the church was incredibly familial in nature. And that's not me mispronouncing familiar, all right? Church was not a weekend event. It was not an information distribution center. It was not a dispenser of religious goods and services. Church was a family. And as a church grows larger and larger, uh, guess what? That gets harder and harder to have that family dynamic. So that's, listen, that's just one of the reasons we're trying to start multiple campuses. You know why? Because we think sometimes you should get into a smaller environment and actually build some relationships and let people get to know you. That's why we're trying to grow the size of our campuses and shrink down the size of this campus sometimes. Why? Because God uses those relationships to redeem our losses. That's what the church is. That when you walk through hard times, not if you walk through hard times, there's people around you who love you because they know you, and they're saying, hey, you're walking a hard road, but guess what? You will not walk it alone. That is the church, and God uses it in redemptive history for his glory and our good. And that's what happened in her life. Ruth should have went back with Orpah and said, you know what? You're right, I'm young, I'm just going to start over. She said, no, no, this is an unlikely friendship here, and I believe God's going to use it, and I'm going to walk with you. And God redeems her losses through an unlikely relationship. But you have to make an effort to be open to those relationships. You have to avail yourself to the body of Christ. Let me just say something here this morning. If you're more committed to the person in front of you than you are the people around you, That's a fan club, not a church. If you're more committed to the person in front of you than you are the people around you, that's a fan club, not a church. God uses the body of Christ, the people around you, to redeem your losses just like he did in the story of Naomi in the book of Ruth. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is that God may engineer an unlikely outcome. You look at the losses in your life, whatever those are, you have no idea how God's going to redeem that. But here's what you forget sometimes. God's not limited by your circumstances. If that's good news, would you just say amen this morning? 
God's not limited in any way, shape, or form. God can providentially order circumstances to do whatever he wants and engineer an outcome to redeem your losses for his glory in ways that you could not even imagine from your limited perspective. Seasons of loss provide a platform for God to display his goodness in unexpected ways. You know what losses really are? They're the starting point for incredible testimonies about God's sustaining grace in your life. That's what a loss is. Those times where you say, I I don't have any, I can't even fathom how this is going to turn out. And God begins to providentially organize or engineer circumstances for an unlikely outcome. You ever had those moments in life where something you, you just were so excited was going to happen something you had anticipated, and then all of a sudden, once you encountered that opportunity, it changed and it turned out in such a way that you would have never wanted it to turn out, something uh, that you thought and hoped was going to happen, actually the exact opposite. Have you ever had that happen in your life? I asked Tasha if that ever happened to her, where something she was really excited about did not turn out the way she hoped. She said, yes, actually about 22 years ago. And I'm still not sure what she meant by that, but I think somehow it's connected to the gift that I am in her life. I'm not exactly sure what that is. This summer I was talking to one of our students. And they were sharing with me. They were so disappointed because they, along with thousands of other students, got the news that their graduation had been canceled. And they were uh, just, just really distraught about that. However, the school got really creative and they drove around to all the seniors' houses and personally delivered all these diplomas in one of the largest school districts in the state of Ohio, so it was actually an incredible feat. And, and, and what happened when the news got out is neighborhoods and families got together and started cheering, and here came the bus and their administrators, and, uh, and just just incredible uh, uh, celebration of what happened. And so I was talking to that student later, and here's what they told me. They said, I was really upset about not having a ceremony, but surprisingly, what they did made graduation even more special than a traditional graduation ceremony. In other words, what was planned and even looked forward to got sidelined, but the unexpected ending was even better than what was planned. That is not dissimilar to what we see happening here in the book of Ruth. Think about all the unlikely twists that God had to providentially engineer from where things start in chapter 1 to where they end in chapter 4. Now, as a matter of fact, these were not only providential events. Listen, there are some things in there that culturally we look at and they just seem weird. Now, let me kind of rewind the tape here a little bit so we can see this theme of what God is providentially doing from where they started in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 1, when we read that, we read the loss of her husband. We read the loss of her sons. We see her own proclamation that I'm incredibly bitter. We can't in our minds fathom how that story has a happy ending for her good and God's glory. But God is not limited by our circumstances, praise God. And God began to providentially engineer circumstance to redeem her losses in an unexpected way. Let me just uh, go back to chapter 2. Get your, get your hands ready. We're going to flip through some chapters here, all right? I want you to see this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And so Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, 
in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. She didn't even call her daughter-in-law anymore. And she says, go, my daughter. That's how incredible that relationship was. All right? So, so here's what happens. They're, they're in the land. And Ruth says, you know what? I'll just, we're starving. I'll go out and glean the fields. And they've got this relative named Boaz. All right? So now skip down to chapter 2. Skip down to verse 17. Verse 17 uh, says, So she gleaned in the field into the evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about uh, an epoch of barley. And then she took it up and went to the city. And her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And she said, the man's name with whom I have worked today is Boaz. Verse 20. And then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And so that's what's happening, all right? So, so if you ever anything about the book of Ruth and she encounters Boaz, that's the story of how they got to this place and how that Ruth went out and met Boaz and found out that Boaz is relation to them, all right? Now, go to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If you don't know anything about the book of Ruth, there's a chance that you've heard the term kinsman redeemer as it relates to the book of Ruth, all right? And so, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says this, And then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Verse 2, Now Boaz whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. All right? Now, none of these providential events that, some, that from our culture, they seem a little weird. All right? Here's verse 4. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do and she said to her all that you say to me I will do and so she she encounters this kinsman redeemer and her mother-in-law says hey I want you to go there to the threshing floor and when he falls asleep I want you to uncover his feet and I want you to lay down there at his feet now if you're sitting next to someone they say you know what I don't think that's that weird you should lean over and tie your shoes a little tighter, all right? That's totally weird, right? But in their culture, that was a sign of, hey, I'm here to serve. And so Boaz is her kinsman redeemer. And so what is a uh, kinsman redeemer? Here's what it is. Kinsman redeemer uh, is a male relative who, according to various laws of, of the Pentateuch, uh, or the Old Testament law, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was uh, in trouble, in danger, or, or in need. And the Hebrew term uh, for kinsman redeemer designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems property or person. And so she encounters this relative, and, and he's her kinsman redeemer, right? But, but that's not the end of the story, because in encountering him, he says, you know what? I don't know if this is the best idea. Go to chapter 3. Go down to verse 12. Boaz is speaking here, and here's what he said. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Now, I just got to be honest with you. If I woke up and someone was sleeping on my feet, I'd 
I would say, hey, I've got a cousin. Let me introduce you to them, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, hey, I am your relative, and I could be your kinsman redeemer, but according to laws and customs that we abide by, there's actually another relative that probably makes a little more sense to be your kinsman redeemer. Look at verse 13. He said, stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until the morning. And so the, the duty he's talking about is I'll act as your kinsman redeemer. I'll uh, rescue you. And so, again, the promised land was set up that, that every family uh, had, a, had an inheritance in a piece of land. And so what would happen uh, when someone would, would die, if the heir dies, then it would fall to the closest living relative to redeem that loss. And they would redeem the loss by buying the property and marrying the widow uh, and the descendants. They would inherit the family's property. And so Boaz comes along and says, hey, there's actually someone in our family who's a little closer and it makes more sense. But in the morning, if he decides that he doesn't want to play the part of the kinsman redeemer, then I'll buy the property and I'll take responsibility for Ruth as her kinsman redeemer. And so that is a part of their culture. But there's some things in the story that are unique circumstances that God would have had to providentially engineer. Here's why. Ruth was a Moabite. And Moabites had oppressed God's people for, for 18 years. And so the men in that region would not even speak to Moabite women. As a matter of fact, by Boaz not only speaking to her, but, but uh, volunteering to maybe be her kinsman redeemer, he might have forfeited his inheritance. And remember, their inheritance was their identity. And so he took incredible risk as God providentially organized these circumstances. And he displays an incredible act of countercultural kindness by redeeming Ruth, a Moabite. Now, this is where it gets incredible. Listen closely. Let me show you how God's unfolding up her story, providentially engineered in an unlikely outcome. Boaz had a mother. Now, hard to imagine, right? Boaz had a mother that we referenced back in the story of Jericho and Joshua. Remember I talked about that Joshua had two allies in the battle of Jericho? He had a marching band on the outside and a prostitute on the inside. Guess who Boaz's mother was? It wasn't the marching band. It was the prostitute. Rahab was Boaz's mother. And so you know why Boaz was willing to take an outsider and display incredible kindness and welcome them into the family? Because he had grown up experiencing what it would be like to be an outsider as, the, as a, a child of a prostitute. He'd experienced the kindness and mercy of other people, and he was willing to display that same thing. So Boaz shows this incredible act of kindness. And nobody could have, could have probably, listen, when, when Rahab, when we go back in the story and God providentially uses her, no one could have imagined said, hey, down the road, Rahab's going to have a son named Boaz. And, and, and eventually, Boaz is going to experience unusual kindness in his life as an outsider, as the son of a prostitute. And that's going to motivate him to, to take in Ruth, who's also an outsider at that time, and welcome him. And no one could have planned what God had engineered providentially to redeem their losses for their good and his glory. That's how God works. And here's the good news. 
That's not even the end of the story. Let me show you how far God is willing to do uh, for those who trust him enough to align the lower story of their lives. Even in the midst of incredible loss, go to the end of the book, and we're almost done. Go to the end of the book. Look at verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Who's that David? It's King David. And it's through King David and through Boaz, and through Rahab the prostitute, that God providentially uh, organizes the circumstances so that Jesus, through the lineage of David, would come our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. We were outsiders because of our sin, brought near by the blood of Christ who was willing to be shunned on our behalf. That's how much God loves you. God will work through incredible seasons of loss to providentially organize events that don't even make sense with an unexpected outcome. Why? So that he can have a dwelling place with his people, so that he can have a relationship with you. And so whenever you feel like giving up, your life has been shattered into a million pieces from tremendous loss, just remember, it's those same broken pieces that God scoops up and through his mercy forms them into something beautiful to display his glory to your neighbors and to all the nations. That's how God works. And so whatever you're walking through, it does not have to be the end of your story. God can redeem your losses. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And here's the good news. We're done. If anybody would trust him enough to take the broken pieces of their life and place them into his sovereign hands, then God will redeem the losses in your life for your good and his glory. If you'll trust him. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask two questions. Number one. Has there ever been a time or season in your life when you've taken the broken pieces of a sinful life and placed them into the hands of Jesus? To receive the forgiveness of our kinsman redeemer. And maybe you look at your life and all the mistakes you've made and all the sin you've committed and all the struggles you've had. And you've always doubted whether or not God would want, want a relationship with you. Listen, that's exactly how God works. God redeems the losses. God takes the shattered pieces. And when we place them in his hands, God engineers providential outcomes for our good and his glory. And so if you're here this morning, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you. It's the broken pieces of your life that's attractive to him. 
And so if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never been saved. You've never been born again. Listen, today is the day of salvation. Would you pray right now and say, God, I've, I've made a mess of my life. I've abandoned you. I've chased after other things. I've got a lot of broken pieces. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins. I believe that he was buried and rose the third day. And today, I receive him for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm putting all the broken pieces in his sovereign hands. Save me, Jesus Christ, from my sins. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning? For those of you who have done that, you've already been saved, you already have a relationship with Christ. I want to ask you a question. Who in this room is walking through a season of incredible loss? Who in this room is wondering how God's going to redeem this loss? Who in this room is wondering how God's going to use your circumstances for your good and His glory? Who in this room is struggling to take that loss and to trust the Lord with it? And who in this room is struggling, feeling like this loss is going to define my life? If that's you this morning, I don't know what that loss is. I just want to pray for you. I just want to encourage you. Heads are bowed. Would you just say, hey, that's me. I'm, I'm in a season of loss and I have no idea how God's going to redeem this loss. Pray that God would strengthen me so that I can continue to trust him in this difficult season. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. That's all. Would you just raise your hand and say, hey, that's me. That's me. You know, several of you. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Let me just pray for you specifically. God, when life doesn't make sense, when life seems unfair, at times we battle unbelief. And God, when loss is painful, it's incredibly hard to see how it's all going to be redeemed. But God, we believe that you'll put people in our lives, like Ruth and Naomi, to, to walk with us when we're weak. God, we believe that you're sovereign over our circumstances. You can take these broken pieces around us right now and God you can engineer an unlikely outcome for our good and our glory so Lord we can't see your hand but we do trust your character and so God strengthen us help us battle unbelief through your Holy Spirit and through the body of Christ God help us to trust you in the midst of incredible losses we believe you're good we believe you're faithful. We believe you're sovereign. We believe that you're for us. And so help us to live out of what we know to be true as opposed to what feels to be true in the midst of loss. We love you, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning, you see, you know what, I'm just.